the next question is from the wonderfully named Disco Duck, and it is on solipsism. They are two words that I have definitely never, ever used in the same sentence before. Okay. Solipsism is the idea that you are the only consciousness that exists. And I wonder what Tom would think about or would have to say about solipsism. For example, tonight I was betting money that a particular football player would score. I was focusing my intent on him scoring together with my friends. And guess what? He scored. Was it a fluke? Most probably. My thought was this. If I was able to nudge the system to make him score for me, then what happened to his free will? If you say, Tom, that we can indeed nudge the system, then that can't include other consciousness beings. Then don't you end up with solipsism? And besides, what would be most efficient for the system anyway? To run one person or millions or billions? <laughs> it's much more efficient for the system to learn millions and billions because one person's just one person. You know, it's, it's not a very large variety of things to learn or a lot, not a very large variety of, uh, of opportunities to take advantage of. Not a very large set of, of uh, choices to make. So, no, you don't end up with solipsism, or however that's pronounced properly. You, uh, you are not alone, and yes, indeed, the nudges that you make to nudge that guy to score, there's somebody else over there rooting for him not to score because they want the other team to win. And yes, you may... You know, things like that can be nudged. You're not taking away the person's free will. The other person still has choices to make. Uh, they can um, decide whether to pass or whether to run, you know, in that game. They can decide whether they need to, you know, you know, make a fake to the left and move to the right or just the opposite. They have all these choices they're making all the time. You're not taking any of that free will away. But... If the let's say the 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 um, choice that he makes is to throw, so now the quarterback decides that oh even though he's you know he's too far back now he's just lost you know 20 yards running backwards because the linemen are coming at him, he doesn't want to get caught down there so he figures he's got to throw, but it's tough because everybody's covered. Now he throws anyway, and. All of your thoughts, when that ball's in the air, there's, there's probably, what, a million people watching that ball fly through the air? And there's some number of them that, uh, you know, are hoping it's going to be a completion and another group of them hoping it's not. They will all nudge that probability a little. But because that probability is got so many people nudging it, guess what? That almost amounts to nobody doing anything at all. It's almost like brownie in motion. If you've got lots and lots of little fingers pushing at a ball all from all directions, the ball doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there. You know, it doesn't move. Well, that's what a lot of this amounts to. You've got a lot of pushes and pulls all over. Each one just tiny little increment, uh, not very strong. People just going, yay, catch it, catch it. You know, that's a intent, but it's a not a strong intent. It's from the intellect. It's not out of the being level most of the time. And it doesn't have a lot of power. But those things play out however they, they play out. And nobody's taking the guy's free will away. They're just modifying outcomes. He still is making all his choices. Just modifies outcome. So the system 
had to break into a lot of individuals in order to create more potential, more novelty, more ways that the system could be constructive, more ways that the system could lower its entropy. You see, just as one monolithic thing, it had a fixed set of ways that it could do things. As two things interacting, now a whole new set of possibilities arise out of that interaction because each interactor has free will. And that's a different thing. Now you get hundreds or thousands or millions of things all interacting. That really stirs the pot as far as possibilities go. And if you have more possibilities, then you have a higher selection of choices. There's more ways that things can happen. That means there's more ways you can build, more ways you construct, more ways you can cooperate. Just the idea of cooperation is kind of tough if you're just one by yourself. You can cooperate with yourself. Uh, that doesn't mean much. But to cooperate with 100 other people to build something, well, 100 egos all have to cooperate in order to get something built. You see, that's lowering entropy. That's that's good. So we need lots of players in the game. And it's not just that you are the only player. If you were the only player, then there really wouldn't be any point. There would be very little point in it. There wouldn't be, it really wouldn't be much of a game. That's like you sitting down at a table to play a game and you get to make up all the rules. Yeah, probably not a lot of fun, you know, to do that, uh, uh, playing a game with yourself and you get to make up the game and make up the rules. So you can either win or lose by your own choice. Not very interesting game. That's why you need lots of people in the game because the more people you have in a game, the more choices you have. The more possibilities there are, the richer the environment for learning. And we all give we all create choices for each other you see you uh, whatever you do if you if you are in a very loving and caring mood that changes the choices for other people who interact with you if you're in a nasty mean mood that changes choices other people have that interact with you you see we interact with each other so we don't have just a stale set of choices that are almost the same every day which it would be if it was just you but we have, you know, lots and lots of choices because everybody has free will and we don't know what these other people are going to do. You know, just when we almost are there, you know, they throw a, you know, a wrench in the works and clogs everything up. And now we've got a whole another set of choices to do that we didn't know we had before. And all of that is, is opportunities for us to learn. Do we get upset because of that? Does that make us angry because they messed us up when we almost had it done? Well, those are opportunities to grow up, you see. So we all create opportunities for each other. It takes a lot of people to do this efficiently. Just one person by themselves seems to have very little point. Sort of like cooperating with yourself has very little point. Kind of loses, uh, you know, caring about others has, has not much point if it's only you, if you're the only one there. It, most of the, the sense of what it's about or it, could it be about anything kind of evaporates when it's only one person. So, no, I think that's that's not uh, an accurate uh, description of how it is. It's not just you. It's not you're the only one that's conscious and everybody else is just a player that that's uh, playing in your game. They're all uh, computer-operated uh, 
you know, they're all, what is it called? Um, um, computer something players. Um, I don't remember. It's an acronym that gamers use. But anyway, for the, for the players, for the beings that are in the game that are generated by the computer and not some user who is logged on. And uh, it, so you're the only one with consciousness and everybody else is a computer-generated character. I hate to shock you, but you're not that important. <laughs> you are not the center of the universe and actually the whole universe yourself. It's uh, We're all in this together and we all have free will and that's what makes it such a viable uh, learning machine, such a viable uh, entropy reduction trainer. Listen, we're going to go on. We've got a bunch of questions and time is running quickly away from us again. Uh, I'm going to ask Faith's next question. I know we had some problems with our mic, Tom. So, uh, Tom, is there a soul group? Now, I think some people call these monads. Um, our immediate relatives are soul group, for example. If the level of maturity is very different with our close family and friends, should we still consider that we could be in the same soul group as our less mature family or friends? Uh, sure. There are such things. Um... You know, typically, I think the term soul group is talking about a group of individuated unit of consciousness who have worked together many times in many different incarnations to where they've gotten really good at understanding each other, each other's issues, each other's problems, what each other needs to be, you know, to experiences they need to draw them out for issues. So they become a good, an efficient learning group. They help each other learn and, and get it. It's not a matter that they all just feel nice and comfy with each other so they sit around and have a good time, but that they actually help each other grow up, help each other learn. And uh, that does happen. And there are these groups that tend to incarnate together and uh, have plans made to, to meet up and to connect in various ways. It's not the norm it's not way the way most people are, but it's the way some people are. So the soul group is probably somewhat in the margins. It's not a thing that is uh, that's common, but it's not that rare either. So I guess just in the margins is probably a, a good thing. You know, it's it's probably out at the five five or six sigma level as far as uh, statistics would go. So yes, they do exist. They can be useful. They sometimes come and go. Sometimes, uh, you know, they will they will uh, work for a while together and then they find themselves with other kinds of issues that need other kinds of connections and they'll go outside of that group for a while and then maybe they'll come back or maybe the group will kind of break up and then they'll come back together for something else. It's not a fixed thing. It's not like, uh, you know, they all have, you know, have to incarnate together. It's all free will choice driven. They do it only because they think it's useful to them to do it. And uh, sometimes they come and go, form and, and disappear. Thank you. Um, okay, next question, Tom. Turbo on the data stream. Um, Tom, as I was driving home from work the other day in the dark, I was thinking about my big toe. I was driving down the road and was just thinking about how I was interpreting the data, the vibration and the road feel coming through the car, headlights whizzing past, taillights in the dark, the heat from the heaters blowing on my face, my dash lit up, feeling the seat through my legs, my backside, my back, my foot pressing the pedal slightly, etc. Loads of data that I was getting and making total sense of all of it. 
I thought at that time, what would an IUOC make of this data if it was suddenly plunged into my avatar, but it had never experienced data or experienced a reality like that before? It would certainly be overwhelmed probably and have no idea what data it was receiving. It would have no idea what a car was, what lights were, what the feeling of warmth was on the face. Maybe they would never have experienced heat or cold even. It would be utter confusion. So my question is then, Tom, have you ever visited another reality frame where you could simply not make any sense of their data? <laughs> uh, yes. And mostly that happens initially. Um, the more time you spend there, the more sense you, you can make of it. It tends to be a, an experience thing. So you, you know, we, we learn all that. You know, you, you're talking about, yes, there's a hundred things going on with you driving your car. I mean, lots of little details and you're aware of all of it. And if suddenly while you were driving, the engine started to make a, a little tick, tick, tick sound every now and again, you'd notice it. And uh, it's not that, that uh, you don't pay attention. You don't pay attention as, to anything in particular as long as it's working, but anything that's out of the ordinary grabs your attention quickly. We learn to do that by starting here as infants and figuring out, you know, what an apple is and how that differs from a house and how that's different than a cat and a mom and a dad and all the other things that are in our life and lights and cars and eventually we learn how to drive them. And it's all a, a learned process of how to interpret that data. I mean, somebody that had never been in our data stream at all wouldn't know what to do with that data. Um, the only reason we look at World of Warcraft and can tell that there's trees and rocks and streams is because they're familiar. World of Warcraft programmers have copied the elements in our virtual reality to put them in their virtual reality so we will know how to interpret them. Otherwise, there'd just be lots of blobs of light and strange numbers of pixels lit up here and there, and nobody would see anything except a bunch of pixels. So we we train ourselves to interpret the data from birth. That's part of why we're born here without intellectual information coming, only with being level information coming over. So in any case, um, yes, I have been places and I just didn't get it. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, nothing made a whole lot of sense. And in those places, you just don't stay long, you know. It's it's not uh, it's it's not some place you stay unless you have a reason to stay, and then you just kind of sit on the sideline for a while and watch, and see if it doesn't start to make sense. And typically, your reason you're there is there's somebody there that you know who can help you out and explain a few things to you, and then it'll make a little more sense. And it takes a long time before you begin to interpret things very well, but you'll never be very good at it. I have had. Uh, I've been places where the the forms weren't like our forms. See, our forms tend to be legs, bodies, head, you know, arms, that kind of thing. And most all critters have that, whether they have four legs and no arms or, you know, but whatever. It's variations of the same sorts of things. So when you see things that are like that, you can adapt to that pretty quickly. Okay, instead of, you know, four legs, everything has six or eight. And okay, instead of one head, everything has three or four. And it may be different, but you can adapt to that because it's all kind of similar in a fundamental way. But then you get to places where there are no body 
parts like you've ever seen before, working in any way you've ever seen before, and you interpret it the best way you can. And your interpretation is probably very wrong because you get the data and you make something of it. And if you could explain to them what you saw, they'd probably laugh because it's your interpretation based on your own knowledge and your own experience of this virtual reality. And it would come out very strange indeed. It's not what they would see. We don't know how to interpret it yet. So um, I've been to places like that. Um, you know, it's not places that you tend to go back to because they're just so far and you don't get them. But there's lots of places that aren't like that. There's lots of places that are similar enough to ours to where, okay, instead of a body and arms and legs and a head and and feet and that sort of stuff, it looks like a, uh, I can say, it looks like a top. Looks like something that's that's uh, except an upside down top. You know, it's a top that's not being spun. It's big at the bottom and tiny at the top, and uh, kind of looks uh, strange. And that thing wobbles around in some way, and you know, it's not at all humanoid or animal-like or anything else. But somehow they get around and do what it is they do. That's harder to deal with because you don't relate to it. And I've been in that particular one and decided that I wanted to try a body. So I insinuated myself, you know, an actual physical form like theirs and found out that I couldn't move it. Oh, I couldn't move it very well. I wasn't coordinated at all. It was, uh, uh, it was, it was uh, kind of a lost cause. I just didn't know how to work it very well. So I was like an infant there. But that's just, you know, it was just fun just to see. I was among friends, so that was just to see what would uh, what would happen. But, yes, there are different places that you don't relate to. But there's lots of places that you can. One of the interesting things is is that when they have this, when we made this simulation that's ours, this, this kind of a tight rule set simulation, there's only certain ways you can do it that it's stable. You know, there's a there's a thing in physics talking about the Afro, the anthropomorphic principle, and they they look at our physics and they say, well, there's a set of constants that if if any of them changed, even in the you know fifth or sixth decimal place, the whole universe would collapse. It wouldn't work. It requires all these constants to be very very precise. Otherwise. You know, 10,000 years, the whole thing turns to dust. You know, it doesn't hold together. You don't have the, the, the gravity coalescing things into suns and into planets that have atmosphere. And all of that evolution doesn't take place because it's not stable enough for that to take place. Before you end up with cells on planet Earth that evolve into critters, you know, you've got billions and billions of years of evolution going on. You have to have a stable system or it just doesn't work. And these constants have been, by trial and error, created so that it's a stable system. So when you go to a different reality frame, many of them will be very similar because it's hard to just make up a rule set that's stable for, you know, 20 billion years. That's not easy to do. There's only a few situations that will be that stable, that work. Things pull together rather than blow apart. So there's a there's a lot of similarity out there. There is some things that are extremely unusual, but mostly it's not that unusual. 
mostly you can with a little practice get the hang of life there sometimes you can even take a body and interact with the locals one-to-one and doesn't take but hours to kind of get the hang of it to where you can you can deal with things reasonably well to get along you're not good at it yet but you're adequate so that means it's just what's not that big a difference from what we have um and when you're a visitor, you don't get into the details anyway. You know, it's you're usually just kind of looking at the big at the big things going on, not the details. And mostly, it's the communication with the other beings that's important, not the actual physical experience. So you don't do that very often because it's not really that useful. Sometimes you do it just for the experience, but mostly it's not a useful thing to do. So I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, hopefully it. Got close. Uh, I hope so, Tom. I think it probably did. Um, made sense to me, I think. Uh, next one is from James. Um, he's asking a question about Kundalini and the connection it has to a mental illness. He says, Tom, could you please go into more details about Kundalini? People suffering mental illness seem to have symptoms of this. Me for one. Is this a part of the LCS plan to awaken more of us? <sighs> Probably not, but, you know, it's hard to say. Again, everything has some uncertainty to it. That is that is one of the great things about a digital simulation is that almost everything is possible. So when somebody says, oh, could this be possible? The answer is almost always yes. There's very little that's impossible. Digital simulations are so general and so easy to manipulate. So, yes, that could be possible, but I think it's... it's uh, not as likely. Um, you know, it depends also on what we call a Kundalini experience. The Kundalini thing is is basically comes out of, of the Hindu theology. It's when the the um, the body. Okay, remember, this is a virtual body. It's ones and zeros. So these are metaphors. When the body um, is constructed just so has the has the right kind of energy and the right kind of balance and so on and if the growth of the individual and the consciousness is sufficient then there's a resonance between the consciousness and the body that kind of reconfigures the body in a way that's more efficient for the consciousness to connect with it okay that's sort of the way that is and they call that reconfiguration that force that energy they call that kundalini Okay, well, that, in a way, yes, that's what's going on as everybody's growing up. As everybody's growing up, the consciousness, you know, the mind leads and the body follows. So consciousness is constantly reconfiguring the body to be more efficient and more effective for it to work with as that consciousness grows up and is able to express itself in ways that the body can't accommodate then the body tends to modify itself to allow the consciousness that expression. That's the way it works. That's what I mean when I say, you know, the mind leads and the body follows. As the mind grows up, the body will adjust to suit the consciousness. Now that's within limits. That's within limits of what the rule set can support. That's within limits of uncertainty uh, in uh, the the process, whatever it is that uh, the body, that the consciousness is trying to, uh, to uh, uh, to emulate, to do. 
So Kundalini is, is, a, is a hard thing to, to uh, pin down exactly because it affects different people in different ways. Now, if it's just in your normal growth, you would say that the, the mind develops until it gets to a certain point, and then the body modifies to, to accommodate that consciousness. So the body's accommodating the consciousness. So then the, that uh, mind always leads. But some people have different biology. Some people have strange biochemistry. Some people come here with a body that's uh, more or less already kind of primed to connect and to be easier for the consciousness to work with. And then we kind of see it going the other way. It looks like the body's leading and the consciousness is following, but it's not really that way. It's just that there's either circumstance, it could be random, it could be planned, that the um, body is constructed in such a way that the consciousness can do more with it. And, and uh, it seems out of place. Well, when it gets to where the body actually can do more than the consciousness is capable of doing, now you often get problems. You've got a misfit. The, the biology, just by circumstance perhaps, or maybe by plan, is, is, uh, is in a configuration that the consciousness isn't yet prepared to deal with. And often there is trouble with that. It's not a good, uh, it's kind of gotten there backwards rather than the consciousness leading the body into something it is prepared for. It's the body's prepared and the consciousness can't quite use it yet. So that would be, I think, the problem that you're talking about. And um, how to deal with that? Well, I guess the consciousness needs to grow up and uh, needs to uh, get rid of ego, get rid of fear, and try to grow into that that uh, particular avatar or eventually I guess the body will probably change to suit that consciousness. But meanwhile, in transition, it's liable to be uncomfortable. So whether that's the, I, I don't think it's really the system trying to prime the pump, although that's possible. I think more of it is just a, a, um, an avatar that is not normal in its, in its central nervous system and its biochemistry and the consciousness is having a little trouble dealing with that. I don't have any good solution of how one does deal with that. You know, it's just that sometimes you just have problems. That's, that's the nature of having a system based on, on uh, statistics. There's always some, situations that come out you know six sigma or ten sigma that means that's, that's statistics talk i'm sorry that means that they're very unlikely you know, but still they're possible and when you go up to that probability distribution of the possibilities and you take a random draw out of that distribution sometimes you get something that just is very unlikely but there it is and it happens so we get a a, a broad brush of situations that have to do from that random draw from the probability distribution. And most of the people end up with something that's kind of maybe one or two sigma close to the mean. 
some people end up with something that's way off the main and then the challenge is to deal with it. Sometimes it's a gift and sometimes it's a curse and sometimes it seems to be both at the same time. And it probably can be either. And whether it's a gift or a curse probably has more to do with your attitude and the way you approach it than anything else. Yeah, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, listen, we've got about 15 minutes to go. I think we can get two more questions in. I'm going to read one from Turbo from the forum. He says, they, or she says, sorry, I'm not sure. A person can get data from the probabilistic future database with intent, but it stays probable due to free will. Now, IEOCs use free will and can alter what is probably going to happen in the future. Does this mean, then, that things are not affected by free will, or that things that aren't affected by free will can be predicted well into the future, like, for example, weather, or is everything here in this PMR affected by our intent, whether, no pun intended, we realize it or not? This also got me thinking if the media was constantly pushing a certain idea about climate enough that IUOCs believed what the media was actually saying. Could the collection of IUOCs actually influence the climate by believing what the media would be trying to tell them? Yeah, to some extent, that's, that is possible. Everything is... You know, everything is probabilistic and statistical. That's the way our reality works. And because it's a feed part of the feedback system of this reality that we get what we ask for. We get what we want. You know, the, the, the system is made to reflect us. That's a learning tool. So if we make a horrible place to live, well, it reflects us. That, that then gives us a lot more incentive to do better or to change, or to find out what's wrong. Whereas if you didn't get this feedback, it's, it's much more difficult to learn without feedback. So the system is always a accurate reflection of us. And that happens because our intent modifies future probability. Yes, it can modify future probability of the weather. But again, when I say it modifies it, I don't mean that it controls it. Our intent does not control the probability. So let's say there was a big storm brewing and there's, you know, it's almost a certainty. It's a, it's a, you know, 0.999999% that it's going to rain. Okay. Because it's been raining, you know, solidly for, you know, a thousand miles, you know, to the West of you and the weather's moving from West to East and you're right in the path of where this is going to go. And you decide you're going to use your intent to make it dry and sunny that day. Well, you see, you're probably not going to get that to work because it would take too much energy to modify that kind of probability. But let's say the probability instead of 0.99999 that it's going to, it's going to rain, let's say it was only 0.6 that it was going to rain. And now you want to modify it to where it doesn't. Well, now you might be able to nudge that, you see, because you're well within the uncertainty of the of what's going on in the rule set. So it's all about uncertainty. If there's a lot of uncertainty, then your nudges can tend to move it around. If there's not much uncertainty, if it's almost a certain thing, very little uncertainty, then it's unlikely that intent is going to move that probability very far. So there's that variable. There's also the variable that if you're doing this all with your intellect, it doesn't have much effect. That's a very light touch on the nudge of the probability. If you're doing it from the being level, then that's a much more powerful effect, but almost 
all the people of the seven and a half billion of us here, probably 99.999% of those only work out of their intellect. Their being level is uh, not really where they live. They, they live, they think, uh, they, they you know, throw coins in the wishing well and, and wish for you know, something. That's a very, very mild nudge to the intent. So if you give the variability in the power of an intent based on the focus of the individual and whether or not it's from their being level or intellect, and then you give the variability of what the probabilities are to begin with, whether or not you actually have much chance to move them or not because of the, the uh, amount or lack of uncertainty in it, then you see that it's not like a done deal that, that we all fix everything to be the way we intend it. We don't control it. We nudge it little tiny bits. We and seven and a half other, seven and a half billion other people are all nudging things. And what you get is about an average over all of that. So if you get it, you know, where you live, if there's a thousand people trying to make the weather sunshiny, well, that's those many nudges in that direction. There's probably a whole lot of others that maybe like the rain because it's been too dry, you know, and they don't have a picnic plan. They, they want the crops to, to grow, so they're pushing it the other way. And what happens is kind of an, an average of all the pushes and pulls plus what the rule set says. The rule set is going to determine things like weather more than nudges because there's so much moisture in the air that has to come from someplace and the air has a temperature can only hold so much and temperatures go down and it has to let go of some of that moisture and you're going to get rain and your little nudge just isn't going to change that basic physics of how the water cycle works. So there's lots of variables in it and it's not that we control it. We just nudge it and mostly our nudges are infinitesimal. Thank you again, Tom. Um, okay, last question. I think we're going to go to the last question. It is going to be from Faith. Again, I'm going to rephrase the question. She said, Tom, um, actually, this is a really good question to finish with. Um, why does Source perpetuate male guides and make figures male throughout history? While I understand the idea could be that people are more receptive to hear from males, it seems that the big cheese or its guides and masters do perpetuate male dominance throughout the century. Why would that be? Why males? <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, there's several reasons why that would be that way. Is the first being that you're getting this idea from ancient literature. You know, we talk about through the centuries. So the people who are writing this down, making uh, making books and making notes of it and making it part of written history, were mostly male. So if you're mostly male, what you're going to interpret, you know, when when you run into some being and it's, you know, a being of light and it's powerful and it's this and that, well, it's going to be male because you're male and that just seems like the natural thing to be. So part of it is just a bias based on who was literate in those times. And mostly, I think it was was the men that were the were the uh, more likely to have been schooled and reading and writing and literature and that sort of thing. So it's just a kind of a fact of history. Now, there's also a fact of, of uh, instinct, the difference between men and women. There's an instinctual component here. And that is women, of course, have different roles than men. The idea is for our species to survive and procreate. 
And if they didn't do that, none of us would be here, right? Because things that don't do that successfully become extinct. So survive and procreate is the name of the game. And humans had a, a particularly viable um, scheme for that that seemed to work better than the other forms of primates or the other forms of animals. They came up with this clever idea of, um, what do we call it, um, breaking the, breaking the uh, jobs and responsibilities down so that we could specialize in one thing or another. Well, the females obviously are going to specialize in the having babies, more humans, because if you don't do that, then the human race goes extinct. Okay, so they have babies and they rear those babies. They have to feed them. You know, there's no bottles and formula. There's, there's none, of the, none of the niceties that make things easy. So there's also no birth control, nothing of that. So basically the females are pregnant all of the time. Once they become of age for getting pregnant, they basically stay pregnant. They've got children of all ages. They have infants to feed. They are basically consumed with the idea of keeping our race alive and not going extinct by producing more humans and taking care of them. Okay. Now, in order for them to do that, they need the, what can we say, the protection and the provisioning from somebody else. Because when you're pregnant and you have seven or eight children and you're breastfeeding, you're not exactly out there, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, fighting and scraping and trying to, you know, wrestle critters to the ground for food and that kind of thing. You're kind of busy and you're you're not uh, uh, in the position to do that. So the males and females got got uh, split to different jobs in this procreation um, survival mode. The men's job was to provision. That means, you know, food, shelter, uh, clothes, whatever was necessary to provision um, the women and children and to protect them. So we have that kind of a thing that enabled humans to survive as a race. Whereas if you look at other primates, they don't have that sort of thing. It doesn't work that way. They're more of everybody for themselves kind of a, a deal. There are uh, the alpha males who kind of are in charge, but they're mostly just in charge of breeding. They're not really in charge of, you know, of uh, provisioning or anything else. So this was a different way of doing it, and it seemed to work really well because, look, there's seven and a half billion of us running around on a planet. So we did the survival and procreation thing really well. We have that as part of our uh, instincts. We humans have instincts. It's like any other animal has instincts. We just don't admit it, and uh, we don't call them instincts, but we do. So the, the, the one that's doing the protecting and the provisioning is seen more in a male role. The one that's doing the nurturing and the, and the uh, uh, what, serving the children is in the female role the males serving the females and the children is in that role. So then if you, it depends on this, this, uh, this being that you talk about, your, your guides or whatever, depends on the role it has. If it's a nurturing kind of a interaction, 
then that would probably be given a female form. If it's a, if it's a, uh, you know, in charge provisioning, uh, taking care of kind of role that would be given a male just because that gets in line with our basic instincts that come from what a couple of hundred thousand years of trying to survive on this, on this planet as a species. So that's another reason why some figures may be male and some be female. Now I've noticed that among the, the people I chat with that talk about their guides, I noticed that uh, many females have female guides and that some men have female guides and that it's the other way around that uh, many more men have male guides, but some don't, some have female guides. Some women have male guides, but many have female guides. It depends on, as far as guides goes, depends on what works. A guide will take the, the form and shape of anything that works. So what puts you at ease? What communicates and connects with you in a way that you can most easily understand? Well, for most people, on the average, that's someone of the same sex. That's why females have more female guides and males have more male guides, because the males talk more the male language, the female talks the more female language, and that tends to work better for most people. But if you, know, if you are, let's say, a very religious person, then you're likely to get some religious figure as your guide or as this uh, very wise person that you connect to. It would be a religious figure. If you're not religious, then it might be an ancestor. And if ancestors aren't your thing, it may just be a, you know, a guy in a robe or a woman in a robe. Whatever it takes to communicate with us, whatever rings our bell, whatever makes us feel comfortable so that we can connect and share, that's what we get. So we kind of determine the sex of our guides based on what we want, what we can most easily get information from, what's easiest for us to trust and to connect with that uses our language. That's, that's kind of why people have different gendered. It's mostly about them, not about the gender of the guide. It's about their needs to communicate. So the gender of the guide is kind of not relevant. The gender of the guide will be whatever it is you need it to be. It's just a being. It can, it can be male or female, either one. It just wants to communicate with you or you want to communicate with it, then it'll be whatever you need. So it could be young or old, male or female, big or small, well-dressed or not dressed, whatever makes you feel comfortable. So I think those are some of the reasons why a lot of the uh, uh, you know, kind of prophets of old were male because it was a male business. Religion was a, was often a male business. Reading and writing was more of a male business, and therefore you have a big um, uh, bias toward seeing everything through male eyes and having everything described in male terms because that's was the nature of the way it was. It doesn't make anything better or worse than the other. It's not a matter of uh, competition here. It's just a matter of expressing in ways that made the most sense at the time for the people who were doing it. That was a pretty cool question from a newbie, Tom. That was a great place to finish. <laughs> yeah, okay, well. Tom, we are, we are going to wrap it up, mate. We, um, we, I know we're, everyone's busy. We've got a very busy time ahead of us, obviously. 
you do have your physics experiments. By the time people watch this, we're going to be well into the Cultural Connection Tour. Uh, you've been invited to speak at some very interesting places later on this year. We'll talk about that at depth later on. Um, we'll then be heading to Pacific Northwest this summer and next year we'll have a European tour and of course the MBT Immersive Experiences. Uh, people can always see what's coming up by visiting the future events page at mbteventscom uh, This is going to be the last fireside chat for a few months while we are away on the Cultural Connection Tour. We will be back in April. It gives Justin some time to catch up with editing, although he's done a brilliant job as always. Uh, you can always contact us by email keith at mbteventscom Tom, as always, thank you. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. And at home, thank you very much for watching. We hope you enjoyed this one. Bye-bye.